Well, good morning. Great to have you with us this morning. There's a family up on the screen in front of you that I want to introduce to. That is Jonathan Monk. You may hear me refer to him as Jay Monk. That's his wife, Allison, and their two little girls, Lydia, the older one, and their brand new one, Chloe. I want you to know who they are because this week, Jonathan joined our pastoral staff as our high school and college youth pastor. So if you see him, make sure you give him a warm welcome. He's down in the high school ministry right now and will be in the college ministry next hour. So glad to have them. Jonathan was teaching Bible in a public school up in North Carolina for the last five years after doing the Bible teaching program at Columbia. I met him eight years ago in a chapel at Columbia. I had spoken in chapel. He came up, uh, introduced himself, had a chance to pray with him that he would be a man of courage and not shrink back to what the Lord was calling him to. No idea that eight years later he'd be coming to Florida and joining our pastoral staff. So, Glad to have Jonathan and his family on board with us. If you're visiting with us this morning or you're a guest, maybe brand new to the chapel here for a few weeks, there's an opportunity in front of you in this Connect card to let us know how we can serve you. We promise we won't show up on your doorstep or contact you in any way other than the way you indicate you'd like to be contacted on this Connect card. It's really our way to serve you in any way that you would desire. And as well for really everyone who attends, there's this prayer card, an opportunity for you to say, would you all pray for us in this way, pray for our family, a need, something you want to want to communicate with us I always invite you to use those and drop them in the baskets on the way out. After the service, we'll have a guest reception out in the courtyard and invite you to stop by there. Our staff are always there. Happy to meet you. If we haven't had a chance to meet you new to the church, we'd love to greet you there. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me not to the Gospel of Mark where we have been since Easter of 2017, but actually going to the Gospel of Luke because this is our third week looking at the triumphal entry, and we've exhausted what it said in Mark, but there's more in Luke that I want us to see. And we've been looking at this because I am so compelled by the reality that Jesus entering Jerusalem on That triumphal entry, what we think of as Palm Sunday, is a a perfect blueprint for us in elevating Jesus in this city. And and the the truths that have risen from these passages have been twofold thus far. First, the overwhelming joy of living each day with that sense of divine expectancy because of the sovereign rule of God. God is always at work, and really each of us can be inspired with that joyful divine expectancy that every moment of every day, not a chance, not by accident, not happened to, but was a purposeful part in God's unfailing, it's not gonna fail, and unfolding, it's developing redemptive story. You see, oftentimes the sovereign rule of God causes people to think, ah, I don't have anything. God's going to do what he wants to do. Actually, it is a compelling privilege 
to recognize that this afternoon, as it unfolds, is a purposeful part of what God is doing in his story. Where you eat today, who you meet, who you talk to, who you pause with when you walk your dog tomorrow, when you work out at the gym. Wherever your paths intersect, guy after first hour says, so excited. It was like, man, after last week, I was so attentive, so aware. Ended up having a great conversation after a round of golf with a guy. Wasn't just golf, it was a purposeful part of what God is doing. That's the privilege that we have because Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to go here, find this. You're going to say this. They're going to say this. Then you're going to say this, and this is what's going to happen. And it happened just that way. And that's true for every day. It's just they got the preview. We don't. But everything that happens, God is working through. That's the joyful privilege. And when Jesus enters Jerusalem, what are they shouting? Hosanna and blessed. Because wherever the presence of Jesus is, he brings blessing. And here's the compelling truth. Does Christ live in us as his children? Doesn't just save us to preserve us for heaven. He fills us with his spirit. Uh, Jesus is wrapped in our human flesh. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And if the blessing of who he is dwells within us, then wherever you go today to be a blessing, because he's a blessing and he's in you. Wherever you go tomorrow to be a blessing, because he who is a blessing lives in you. That we have, in the sovereign rule of God, we have this incredible privilege to bless this city that God has placed us in. The neighborhood we're in, the workplace, the family, the street, to be a blessing there. And real quickly, just as review, a few were here last week. That simply means we begin with prayer like Jesus did. We listen to people like Jesus listened to people. We eat with people like Jesus ate with people because when you eat with people, you identify with them. You serve people like Jesus served people and you share your story and his story like Jesus shared his story and the Father's story with people. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. It can happen this afternoon. Wherever you go tomorrow, I just want to encourage you, wake up tomorrow morning, begin with prayer and let the day unfold with that attentive, alert Help me, Lord, be courageous. You've been praying that. Help me, Lord, be courageous to enter in to everything that you have for, to bless whoever I come across today. That's the incredible privilege. If we would do this, folks, Jacksonville would be glad we're here. But that's not the way most people experience Christians. Lots of people experience Christians like I talked about last week, that, oh, no, here he comes. Or, oh, no, here she comes. Let's not be the, oh, no, people. (laughs) Let's be the blessing people, because that's what Jesus was a blessing. The only people who thought, oh, no, here he comes, were the people who were religious but didn't love God. They went, oh, no, here's Jesus. Everybody else went, oh, yes, here's Jesus. Don't you want to be the, oh, yes, people? Bless. Begin with prayer. Listen, eat, serve, share. So they're shouting, Hosanna and blessed. And in Luke 19, verse 39, where you're turned if you have a scripture, the Pharisees, the religious people who didn't really love God but loved their religion, they say, teacher, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop shouting that. 
Jesus says, I tell you, if these become silent, those stones will cry out. In other words, it's the truth. You can't shut up about it. And then Matthew 21 tells us as this triumphal entry unfolds that when he, Jesus, had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred up saying, who is this? That's, a, that's, that's just a great picture, folks. Well, what if you and I lived in such a way that the life of Jesus was coming out of us so much that we were such a blessing that literally people would say, who is this Jesus that you're talking about? Who is this? And the irony is this, it's been so clear who he is. In answering the question of who is Jesus, he had said by the triumph entry, he's savior and king. And Jesus said, no, I can't shut up. If I do tell him to shut up, the rocks are going to take their place. Because who am I? I am deserving of all praise. This is what the triumphal entry is answering the question, who is Jesus? But this is what's so fascinating. The answers can become clear, and people still miss it. So here's, here's the point for this morning. Two weeks ago, sovereign rule of God. Last week, be a blessing. Here's the point this morning. In answering the question, who is Jesus, verse 11 in Matthew 21 says, the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus. This is how, who is he? Oh, it's the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, here's a vote. We're going to take a vote. True or false? You're, you know, this is a vote. Not for four of you. True or false? True? False. True or false? <laughs> Come on. Is he a prophet? Is he a prophet? Yes, he's a prophet. What's the hesitancy? What? Oh, so that's a true answer. It's just not the full truth. It's not the whole truth. So it, this was Jerusalem in Jacksonville. If people were asking, who is Jesus? And somebody said, oh, he's a really good teacher. Would that be true or false? True. True. Would that be good enough? You see, this morning, very simply, I want to answer for us the question, who is Jesus, and equip us to say and to be prepared for people who go, well, he's a good teacher, which is the 2018 equivalent of Jerusalem. He's a prophet. Well, that's true, but... Is he more than that? And if you think he is, how would you engage someone to help them understand who he is is more than a good teacher? And we're going to do that uniquely this morning. I'm actually not going to answer it for you. I'm going to, and you're going to go, seriously? I'm going to show you a video. Because... This ministry we've been telling you about, encouraging you to be aware of and to start thinking about inviting people to, called Alpha. Their second video in their series answers the question, who is Jesus? And quite frankly, when I watched that, I went, well, that's a lot better than I would do. So I'm going to allow them 
to answer this question, is he more than a good teacher? Who is Jesus? And I hope, I hope as you watch this, you'll go, oh, now I have a better feel for Alpha. Now it's more than just come and watch a video. Alpha is come and let's eat a meal together and then let's watch a video together and then let's talk about some of the questions and you'll see them surface some of the questions it's conversational it's listening and so I think you'll go when you walk out man that was really good that was a lot better than Doug I, I promise you're saying that was a lot better than Doug and I hope you'll go man now I have confidence to invite somebody. So, who is Jesus? Let's answer this question. Watch it together. Arguably the most famous person in history. Over two billion people claim to follow him. That's one third of the world's population. He's represented in art and literature more than any other figure. Time magazine called him the most influential person who has ever lived. But who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Mm. Uh, uh, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, I believe he was a person. Um, he's the son of God. I don't believe Jesus ever really existed. Son of God. If I have to answer that question, I would say God. Uh, he plays on the wing for Chelsea. If you read the Bible, I don't think I believe in all of that. Everything. <laughs> he can be any, but for me he's everything. Who is Jesus? To be honest with you, I don't know. I'm not super religious or anything, so. I mean, he, I guess it's a savior or something. <laughs> Personally, I think that Jesus was probably a really cool dude who lived a long time ago and gave great advice to people, and it snowballed from there. For much of my life, I wasn't a Christian. I come from a family of trial lawyers, barristers. My father was a barrister, my mother was a barrister, my sister is a barrister, my son qualified as a barrister, my daughter qualified as a barrister, both my grandfathers on both sides were barristers, my uncle was a barrister. If we'd had a cat, it would definitely have been a barrister. My father was a, a Jew, a secular Jew. He uh, escaped the Holocaust. Many of his family had died in the Holocaust. My mother was not a churchgoer. My father described himself as an agnostic. And I came to the conclusion that I was an atheist as a teenager. And I was quite an argumentative atheist. Not that I was out to convert people to atheism, but if anyone tried to convert me to Christianity, then I had a lot to say on the subject. And I was quite suspicious of Christians. I'd come across one or two of them in my gap year, and they had these smiles, which I found deeply suspicious. And in my first year at university, I had room next door to my great friend, Nikki Lee. And I warned him against these Christians. I said, don't let them into your room, whatever you do. But it was too late. 
he'd met some. And one time he and his then-girlfriend, now his wife, Scylla, came back and they said that they had become Christians. I was horrified. I mean, they were such lovely people. I thought, how can I help them? I, I really didn't know anything about it, so I thought, I better investigate. So I managed to find this old Bible. And that night I started reading it. I started beginning of the New Testament. I read Matthew's Gospel, Mark, Luke. I got about halfway through John's Gospel, about three in the morning, I fell asleep. The following day I carried on reading. All that day, all the next day, all the day afterwards. I was a student, so I didn't have any work to do. And when I got to the end of the New Testament, I came to the conclusion, it's true. You can't prove Christianity mathematically. You can't prove it scientifically. Science is obviously very important, but science answers a different set of questions. Science answers the questions, when, how did this world come into being? But it can't answer the question, who and why? Supposing I had a cake here, which I've made, and I give it to a scientist, the scientist will be able to answer the question how it was made. They may be able to tell you when it was made, but only I can tell you who made it and why I made it. Only the creator of the cake can do that. Only I can tell you I made that cake, and I can tell you why I made that cake. And it's the same with this universe. Only the creator can reveal who made this world and why he made it. And the claim of Christianity is that he has done that. The creator has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And the evidence is not scientific evidence, that's not the only kind of evidence, but historical evidence. When I was a barrister, that's what we relied on. We relied on historical evidence that we presented to a jury. It was things that had happened in the past. They weren't there. Every time a jury brings back a verdict, it's a step of faith based on evidence. And I myself could not be a Christian if I didn't believe there was evidence. I couldn't just take a blind leap of faith. For me, faith in Jesus is a step of faith based on good historical evidence. Why start with Jesus, you might say? I didn't even believe there was a God. But I came to believe in God through Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus strongly suggests that this world has a creator. And that that creator is to be seen in terms of, through the lens of, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is believed to have walked these streets around 2,000 years ago. But is there any evidence that he even existed? Well, there's actually quite a lot of evidence. No serious historian would deny that Jesus existed. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius wrote about Jesus, as did the first century Jewish historian Josephus. He described him as Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And then he goes on to describe his crucifixion and alleged resurrection. So there's evidence outside of the New Testament 
for the existence of Jesus. But most of the evidence comes from within inside the New Testament. And sometimes people say, well, the New Testament was written such a long time ago. How do we know what was written down hasn't been changed over the years? Well, the answer is that we do know because of a science called textual criticism. Textual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous History of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. Professor F.J.A. Hort, one of the greatest scholars in the area of textual criticism, concluded that, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. And no secular historian would disagree with that conclusion. So we know from evidence outside and inside the New Testament that Jesus existed. But who was he? Well, we know that he was fully human. He had a human body. He ate, he drank, he sweated, he got tired, he suffered pain. And he had human emotions, love, joy, sadness, and human experiences. He had the experience of growing up in a family, of education, of having a job, of being tempted. And he experienced bereavement and suffering and torture and even death. Many today will say, okay, he was a human being, but only a human being. Maybe he was a great religious teacher, but no more than that. Others would say he was much more than that. Bono, the lead singer of the band U2, has said, I don't think you're led off easily by saying he was a great thinker or philosopher, because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. 
He was crucified because he said he was the son of God. So he either, in my view, was the son of God or he was nuts. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for nearly 2,000 years, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I don't believe it. He went on to say, I believe that Jesus was the son of God. What evidence is there to suggest that Jesus was more than just a great religious teacher? There are two parts to this argument. The first is, what did Jesus think about himself? Because if Jesus didn't think he was God, that's the end of the argument. But if he did, the second part of the argument is, was he right? So, what did Jesus say about himself? First piece of evidence is the fact that his teaching was centered on himself. Most great religious teachers point away from themselves. They say, don't look at me, look at God. Jesus, who personified humility in pointing people to God, pointed to himself. He said, look at me, come to me. We've talked about this search for meaning and purpose, that feeling of like a spiritual hunger that other things don't quite satisfy. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I'm the one who can satisfy that spiritual hunger. Addiction is a major problem in our society. Jesus said, if the son, in other words, if if he himself sets you free, you will be free indeed. Then there's all the stuff we carry around. Worry, anxiety, guilt, fear. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He said, if you receive me, you receive God. If you welcome me, you welcome God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. Forgiveness is right at the heart of Christianity. Jesus went up to people and said, your sins are forgiven. Now, if someone sins against you, then you can forgive them, but you can't just walk up to anyone and say, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus said that, the lawyers said, who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus claimed to be able to do that. In fact, Jesus said that he came to give his life so that people could be forgiven. One of the most direct claims Jesus made is recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now making a claim like this was seen by the religious leaders to be blasphemy. It's tantamount to a claim to be God, and it was punishable by death by stoning. People picked up stones to stone him. Then Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere human being, claim to be God. I think when you look at all the evidence, it's clear that Jesus did make that claim. It is an astonishing claim. And a claim like that needs to be tested. If you think about it, there are only three possibilities. It was not true, and Jesus knew perfectly well it wasn't true, in which case he was a fraud, or it was not true And he simply didn't realize it. He genuinely thought he was the son of God, in which case he was deluded. I think we'd say he was insane. But logically, there is only one other possibility. And that is, it's true. He was telling the truth. C.S. Lewis, Cambridge professor, best known as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, he put it like this. A man 
who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else insane or something worse. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. So was Jesus right in what he said about himself? What evidence is there to support his claims? Well, the first piece of evidence is his teaching. Much of the New Testament records numerous occasions where crowds gather to hear Jesus teach. And on one occasion, on a mountain like this, more than 5,000 people gathered to listen to the teaching of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount has been widely acknowledged amongst the greatest teaching of all time. Jesus' teaching has been the foundation of our entire civilization. Many of our laws were originally founded on Jesus' teaching. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And then this, totally revolutionary, love your enemies. In fact, we've advanced in every field of science and technology, yet in 2,000 years, no one has ever improved on the moral teachings of Jesus. They are the greatest words ever spoken. They're the kind of words you might expect God to speak. Another thing that marked Jesus' life was his love for the marginalized, feeding the hungry, healing the sick. His character has impressed millions who wouldn't call themselves Christians. Time magazine called him the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of Western humanity. He was a person in whom even his enemies could find no fault and whose friends said that he was without sin. It's been said that our character is truly tested when we're under pressure or in pain. And when Jesus was being tortured, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Another piece of evidence is his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. No one else in history has had a whole collection of books written about them before they were born. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, 29 of them in a single day. Of course, it could be suggested he was a kind of clever con man who set out deliberately to deceive people. He read all these prophecies and he thought, right, I'm going to go through and I'm going to fulfill them all in my life. The difficulty with that theory is that, first of all, the sheer number of them. And then the fact that, humanly speaking, he had no control over many of these things. There were prophecies about the exact manner of his death, about the place of his burial, even about the place of his birth. Clever commander began and said, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to be born in Bethlehem. It's too late. <laughs> then the final piece of evidence, his conquest of death, the physical resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of Christianity. And this is relevant to every single one of us because we're all going to die. It's the ultimate statistic. One in one die. You go to a funeral. The coffin is lowered into the ground. It looks absolutely final. And it is. Unless Jesus died and was buried and then was raised to life. In which case, death has been conquered. But is this just wishful thinking?
Paris from the dead. That's what I was taught. I'm not, I, I don't know, I can't say yes or no. Yes, I do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. As a man of science, I think that's pretty impossible. <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> yes, yes I did. I definitely don't think that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he did. <laughs> no, Jesus did not, did not come back from the dead. That's ridiculous. Well, it could be used as a metaphor, right? Could have been a, a drug trip. Yeah, of course it did. I do believe in that, 100%. Just the relationship that I have with him is proof enough. I'm not sure, I haven't looked that up. Um, I, don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know. There are four pieces of evidence for the resurrection. The first is his absence from the tomb. No one has ever satisfactorily explained how Jesus' body was absent from the tomb that first Easter day. People have come up with all kinds of explanations. For example, maybe the authorities stole the body. Well, in that case, why didn't they produce it when people started saying that he'd risen from the dead? Or perhaps the robbers stole the body. But when the disciples heard that Jesus had, had been seen, they ran to the tomb and they found that the tomb was not empty. Inside the tomb were the grave clothes that Jesus had been wrapped in. The only valuable thing that a robber might have taken was still there. The grave clothes had collapsed like a caterpillar's cocoon when a butterfly has emerged. And the piece that had been around Jesus' head had been folded up and put in a different place. And when they saw that, they believed. The second was his presence with the disciples. Jesus was seen on more than 11 occasions, on one occasion by a group of around 500 people. People say, well, it could have been a hallucination. Well, hallucination does happen among highly strong, very nervous or highly imaginative people, or people who are sick or, or on drugs. But the disciples don't fit any of those categories. They were cynics like Thomas. There were tough fishermen, there were tax collectors, and tax collectors do not hallucinate. The third piece of evidence is the transformation that we see in the disciples. Here was a group of people who were disillusioned, despairing that their leader had died, and then suddenly they were transformed. They started saying, we've seen Jesus, he's really alive. And they went around telling everybody. Later on, practically all of them were killed, crucified, tortured, beheaded because of what they believed. And if they were deceiving people, all they had to do was say, no, 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 it's not actually true. But they never said that because they knew it was true. It had totally transformed their lives. And as a result, this extraordinary movement swept around the whole known world. And it's a movement without precedent in the history of humanity. And fourth, it's still happening today. There are now over 2.3 billion Christians around the world of every ethnicity, continent, nationality, economic, social and intellectual background. They all speak of this encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. So what are we to make of Jesus? It seems to me clear that Jesus really did claim to be a man whose identity was God. And when we look at the evidence of his teaching, his life, his character, his fulfillment of prophecy, his resurrection, to say he was insane or a fraud seems to me absurd, illogical, actually unbelievable. On the other hand, it provides the strongest possible supporting evidence that what Jesus said about himself was true. 
And when I looked at the evidence, when I read the New Testament, I came to the conclusion, it is true. I didn't want to become a Christian because I thought if I became a Christian, life would be totally miserable from that moment onward. So I tried to put it off. I thought I'll put off becoming a Christian to my deathbed. And then I realized that would not be intellectually honest. So very reluctantly, I kind of said, okay, yes. And at that moment, I can still remember that moment so clearly. It dropped from here, from my head, being convinced it was true, to here in my heart, having an experience of a relationship with Jesus. And finding what, I guess looking back, unconsciously I'd been searching for all my life. Something that provided ultimate meaning and purpose to my life. It was the very last place on earth that I expected to find it. But at that moment, I found that what Jesus said was true. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. It really is true that God has revealed himself in Jesus. Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Jesus really did rise from the dead. There is hope beyond this life. There is hope for this life. Right now, in this life, in an encounter with Jesus, we find life and life in all its fullness. So that was good stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really better than that. Lots better. Uh, so uh, here's what I want to ask you. As you were watching, did, did you think at any point, oh, I wish so-and-so would see this? Did somebody come to your mind, I wish they could see this? Uh, if you had a person when you, that you were watching, you thought that that's exactly the person that I'd say, invite them to Alpha. That's video number two. Invite them to Alpha. We got out under the impact gazebo in the courtyard there. Invitations that you, you can begin to hand out and say, hey, I'll come with you. Or if you don't want me to come, I won't come. But I think this would be so helpful based on the conversations we've had starting in September. So invite them. Speaking of inviting, would you ever invite somebody who you had just met to your house for dinner and then cook something that you had never cooked before? Probably not. You're a chef. You wouldn't do that. You went to school for being a chef. You wouldn't do that. You, you cook something that you have cooked many times. Why? Because you have confidence in it. Honestly, one of the reasons I wanted you to see that is because I want you to have confidence that if you invite somebody to Alpha, you're not going to be afterwards going, oh, I'm sorry, that was kind of lame. It's not lame at all. It's really, really good. So you can invite with confidence. And 
Here's what has been so compelling. This is why uh, I am so committed that you would understand that Alpha is more than a video. It's a meal. It's a video. It's conversation. But the power of the invitation, it's been used all across the world. And, And watch. Do you know the number, the percentage of participants in Alpha who identify as followers of Jesus within a year. So they take it within a year. How many of them end up going, I'm a follower of Jesus? That's amazing. Is that not amazing? And not because it's magical, but because it simply takes the Jesus model in engaging with people. This is what struck me. After teaching last week, uh, the whole blessed strategy of Jesus began with prayer, then he listened to people, he ate with people, he served people, and he shared with people. I thought, why is Alpha so successful? (laughs) Hello? Because it begins with prayer. It's rooted in listening to people, not giving answers, but listening. Every time you get together, you eat a meal with people. You're willing to serve them, and you, in a very natural context, have an opportunity to share your story and and his story. It's what Jesus did. So I want us to have confidence in our inviting. But even more than that, I want to have confidence in answering this question Who is Jesus? And I hope you captured from what the video shared that he cannot be only a good teacher. See, this is more than just, I want you to have confidence in this opportunity to invite, but that you would have confidence in who Jesus is. He cannot. Why why can he not only be a good teacher? Did you capture it? Why? Because he claimed to be far more than that. He claimed to be God. And so if he's not that, he's not a good teacher. He's a horrible teacher. Uh, He is. You heard the three options. He's a, a liar. What Nicky Gumbel, the host, says, a fraud. Or a lunatic. Insane. Deluded, deceived, or what? What's the third option? He's the Lord. He is God. He is who he claimed he was. That's the logic of that. So I want you to have confidence in that. I want you to have confidence inviting to Alpha. There's in your bulletin there uh, an insert that talks about Alpha and when it starts and an, actually an opportunity in August, a, a taste of Alpha where you can go, well, let me really experience the full thing, not just the video, but come together after church on August 5th, 11 o'clock, eat a meal together, watch session one, not the one we just watched, watch session one and sit around the table and have a conversation. Let me experience it because I'm well aware that some of you here this morning in this hour may be going, I'm not fully convinced or I still have my own questions about who Jesus is and the privilege to be able to have conversation about it. But listen, 
This is not about winning an argument. This is not about winning a logic text. Ultimately, it's about a person and having a relationship with a person. Because when, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, you know what he did? It says this. He went to the temple and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Verse 10, who is this Jesus? Verse 11, he's the prophet. <laughs> yes, but so much more. He's God. He's demonstrated that he has the ability and the power to transform a life. So it's not just an intellectual argument. It's a relationship with a person, with God himself who is compassionate. Jesus is Savior. He is King. He is deserving of all praise. He's more than a good teacher. He's compassionate. And he offers life abundant and life eternal. Do you know him? Not about him. Not do you know about his claims. Do you know him? Have you had what Nikki talked about? That experience, that encounter where knowledge of Jesus went from here to a relationship with Jesus. That's ultimately why Jesus came. I've come that you have, he said, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I've come that you believe in me and not perish, but have eternal life. It's a relationship with him. Now, there's an intellectual process of understanding to enter in. So do you know him? If you have questions, do what Nikki did. Just start in the Gospels and start reading. In September, say, I'm going to come to Alpha, and I'm going to start listening myself and talking and, and wrestling through my own spiritual questions. Most of all, I want us to know the Jesus who is compassionate and heals and changes lives, restores individuals and restores marriages and restores families. That's who Jesus is. And so, Father, we begin by acknowledging in prayer that only you can open the eyes of the blind, that only you can bring sight to those who are searching to know who you really are. I pray that you would open eyes that they might see Jesus as the bread of life, as living water, as a good shepherd, as the door to abundant life. I pray, Lord, that as we know you, we would lift you up in this city and that many, many, many more in this city would have their question answered, that they might know you as Savior and King and experience your compassion. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you have 
questions about Alpha, I encourage you to go by the Impact Gazebo. If you're new to CFC, we'd love to welcome you. If we can pray for you in any way, stop by here, men and women available. Thanks for being here. God bless.